Hey, it's Greg Stanley. If you're listening to this podcast, you know I love everything automotive. This passion has expanded to include being a car specialist consultant for RM Sotheby's. So if you need assistance buying or consigning a collector car at any one of our online or live auctions, including Scottsdale, Amelia Island, or Monterey, you can reach one of our car specialists at rmsotheby's.com or you can email me directly at gstanley at rmsotheby's.com. I just want to give a quick thanks to Euro Classics for sponsoring this episode. Your Classics is all about collector cars, from servicing your new BMW M5 to prepping your Porsche for the racetrack to executing a total restoration on your favorite classic. They do it all from routine maintenance to performance upgrades to appraisals and everything in between. You can learn more about its owner, Dale Oaks, by listening to episode number 65 of this podcast. And you can find Euro Classics in the Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana service area and online at euroclassics.com. Classics, C-L-A-S-S-I-X dot com. This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. Before we get to this week's episode, I do want to take a moment to give a couple updates. The first off is thank you for those of you who have submitted cars for my What's Your Car Worth episode coming up in a few weeks. Uh, I've got some pretty cool cars that will be quote-unquote appraised by me. I'll have a lot of kind of guidelines for that so I don't get anybody upset. It's basically based on what you send me from a description and a few pictures. Then the other thing I wanted to talk about was basically give an update as far as some of the feedback I've received from a post I put in the AACA Facebook page. And this was pretty interesting. People got pretty riled up that I called a Corvette a muscle car. So I do want to recognize the comments that were posted because I thought they were pretty interesting. And I will defend myself here by saying Corvettes were originally designed as sports cars. Correct? Yes, absolutely true. Just as Mustangs were pony cars. I think they fall into the muscle car era, at least for the Corvette, when you get to the 427 big blocks in 1966. And I think the pony cars, the the Mustang, turned into a muscle car with the 1968.5 big block, again, 428 Cobra Jet. I think if you were to write a book about the muscle car wars of the 60s, you would not leave out <laughs> Camaros, Mustangs, or Corvettes. I think it's ridiculous to think that those are not muscle cars in some form or another. But that's just my humble opinion. Now, I do want to respect other folks' opinions, so I'm going to read off Some of the comments here, I find it pretty fascinating. These are unedited, so I might have to skip over a few as I start reading into them. But the first one, the very first guy I got upset, apparently, was John Isbell. Muscle cars are, comma, by definition, a sedan with an oversized engine. Corvettes are not sedans, therefore are not muscle cars. If this guy is an authority, he should know this. Just my opinion. (laughs) And I responded, well, I don't claim to be an authority across every type of car ever built, but I was quoting articles from Motor Trend, Car and Driver, and other notable magazines from experts. Rick Nelson responded, generally true. However, I don't think anyone would claim that a 1970 Hemi convertible isn't a muscle car and it's not a sedan. Michael Lambert said the Pontiac GTO and Mustangs are early muscle cars. I don't think that it has ever been by definition by definition, if ever there was a restrictive definition. The Buick GNX and countless others are considered muscle cars by many. John Lyons said, he's right, Corvette was never a muscle car. Uh, Let's see, Arthur Teague, 
says that still doesn't answer the question. I've read plenty of articles about muscle cars and they didn't fit that description. Michael Gilligan replied, sorry, but this comment is kind of funny. Why do you limit the sedans? What about the two-door hardtop? Jim Johnson responds, originally, the very strictest definition of a muscle car was a midsize two-door offered with high-performance engine options not normally available in that body style and marketed under a special name. Thus, a 1968 Roadrunner, which wasn't offered as a four-door with a Super Commander 383, was a muscle car. A 1968 Satellite with a 383 four-barrel was a mid-sized Plymouth with an optional engine that was available as a four-door. The Mustang, Barracuda, Challenger, Cougar, Camaro, Firebird, etc. were called pony cars. They were sporty, proprietary body styles, not available as four-doors. The definition of a sports car was debated earlier than the others and was, in a way, easier to pin down. The pri- this guy wrote a lot. Pretty cool. The primary factor here was the lack of a back seat, although this was clouded by cars like the AMX, which, although lacked a back seat, wasn't a sports car by any other definition. Generally, it was accepted that the Corvette was the only sports car made in the USA, although when the GT40 came along, it too blurred the definition. Today, the generally accepted definition of these classifications have been broadened and altered to a great extent, and everyone agrees that definitions, like rules, have exceptions that make them hard to pin down. That was a fantastic comment. Ronnie Hall says, Growing up in the late 1960s, those were the given titles we always went by. The mid-sized 1964 GTO with a 389 from the full-size Bonneville was considered the first muscle car during the era. We called the 1964 a pony car and the Corvette a sports car. Now, I, want, I would love for the folks to respond to 1968 to see if they would keep those same opinions. Michael Gilligan responds, I've always said the 1964 Pontiac was not Pontiac's first muscle car, in my opinion. Pontiac's first muscle car was actually a very overlooked 1963 Pontiac Grand Prix with the 421, three-deuce intake, and four-speed manual transmission. I've only seen two of them in my life, one in a junkyard in Albuquerque, New Mexico in 1977, and one in Ohio, whoop, whoop, behind a garage around 1999. Where is that garage? I want to find that car. Both were white with blue interiors. And I think that was about it. So basically, there's a lot of controversy about what is or is not a muscle car, I guess. If you look at 1964, you could call the Mustang a pony car, the Corvette a sports car, and everything else a muscle car. Not everything else, but you get my gist. And then I would say, what do you call them in 1968? So uh, thanks for all the comments. Thanks for all the feedback. I love this type of dialogue, and keep it coming. Well, welcome to the Collector Car Podcast. This is Greg Stanley. We have a special guest today, Jerry Burton. Jerry, how are you doing today? Uh, great, Greg. Uh, glad to be here. and Always happy to talk about Corvette. Yeah, actually, we met at Bloomington Gold. You were there autographing some books, and I thought you would be a wonderful guest for the, the podcast today. So if you would, could you just tell our audience a little bit about the books you've written as it relates to the automotive industry? And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong here, but most of them have to do with Corvettes. Yes, that's true. I did write a uh, a uh, hundred year history of Chevrolet that was actually an update from a book that had been previously written, uh, and that was published for the uh, hundred year anniversary of uh, Chevrolet. And I had the uh, the honor of working with Ralph Kramer on that project. And Ralph uh, was the former communications head of Chevrolet, and so that was a great project to work with him on. And we had a chance to interview a ton of interesting people uh, from the past and, you know, people that were currently there at Chevrolet at the time. And uh, just a, it's a hell of a story. And, 
you know, the Corvette, of course, is, is also a hell of a story. And uh, the book that I'm most proud of and I'm probably most known for is Zora Arcus Duntoff's biography. Uh, it was published back in 2002. Hard to believe it's been out that long now. Wow. But uh, I'm still signing copies of that thing because it's just, uh, there's been a lot of recent interest in Zora because of the C8 Corvette coming out. And of course, people uh, may not have realized it, but Zora was a huge mid-engine advocate and uh, was trying to sell General Motors on a mid-engine Corvette going all the way back to 1957. So uh, it's, it's quite a story. You know, he never saw it come true during his lifetime, although he was responsible for a lot of mid-engine prototypes that were built. And that, there's quite an interesting uh, thread there, uh, and I've written a number of articles on that subject. Um, but uh, the C8 is certainly, you know, Zora's dream come true. And um, it, he had a lot of reasons for wanting to go mid-engine. But I think fundamentally it was Zora, I think, always wanted to build the best race car he could and then adopt right. it for the street yep. as opposed to trying to design a car around, uh, you know, the needs of cargo or passenger comfort or whatever. He wanted to build a damn race car and, uh, you know, make it go fast and, and, and hope that it had enough emotional appeal and just enough practical value to be uh, interesting and successful. And I think that formula largely worked for him. Yeah, and now how did your passion for Corvette specifically begin? Were you like a little kid and see one, you know, driving by? Or, you know, what sparked that love for Corvette specifically? Well, when I was uh, about nine years old, a young woman uh, who was living with her mother at the time um, bought a, what I think was like a 1959 Corvette. You know, it was red with white side coves and so forth. I had never seen anything like that. And I just thought, oh, my God, that is the coolest looking car I've ever seen. And, uh, you know, I instantly fell in love. And furthermore, she ended up joining a Corvette club, and oftentimes it, there would be like three or four Corvettes in her driveway at a time, and wow. I was just out there just, you know, my licking my lips and, you know, my mouth wide open and uh, uh, tearing up, and I thought, oh, my God, this, I've died and gone to heaven. These, are, these cars are so cool. And then uh, I started watching Route 66, too, when I was, uh, when that show was still on, and uh that was back in the early 1960s, and they, of course, started off, I think, at a 1960 Corvette uh, for the pilot show, and then they drove primarily 61s and 62s, and I think the final season they were in a, uh, a 63 Stingray um, convertible. But, uh, you know, that, that whole notion of that, these two guys, you know, driving around the country, kind of leaving their baggage behind and finding new lives and towns and places in the country that they would visit. I just thought, wow, what a neat concept and, you know, kind of awakened some wanderlust in me in terms of being able to do that. That really cemented uh, my love of uh, sports cars and especially the Corvette. Right, right. Okay. And I'm probably leading the witness here, but there's eight generations of Corvettes. How would you rank? No, nah, let's not say rank. Which, which generation is your favorite and why? 
Oh, that's always uh, tough, and it's you know it seems like it's changed. It's changed for me over the years. Like right now, my favorite I think is the C8, just simply because it's the newest and the most modern, and by far the the best car of the group. But you know, emotionally, I've always had a a strong pull for the first generation car, and especially like a 1956 or 57, 57 they um, they debuted fuel injection. And I always thought that car was just one of the coolest-looking sports cars ever. Wow, okay. No, that's cool. That's a great answer. Now, how did you go from liking Corvettes to writing about Corvettes? Well, that's interesting, too. Uh, I ended up going to school at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, I got a mass communication journalism degree and then uh, went on to – I ended up moving to California after I graduated from Wisconsin and established residency in the San Diego area. And uh, back then, if you were a resident of the state of California, you could go to school for pretty cheap. So I ended up going to grad school at San Diego State. And uh, my first job out of San Diego State was uh, as a managing editor for a, a racing magazine based in Los Angeles called Formula Magazine. It later changed its name to Race Car Magazine. I did that for about a year. Then I got a job offer to move to Detroit and become the motorsport editor of Auto Week. So I did that for a couple of years. During those, that, those years, I ended up meeting Zora Arcus Dentoff and became friends with him, which you know eventually led to uh, me doing the book. After I, I took a couple of PR jobs after Auto Week and uh, ended up at uh, Chevrolet's ad agency, Campbell Ewald. And the reason they hired me was they wanted someone to help them launch the fourth generation So that's what I did. That was a car that everyone was excited about because it was so radically different from the other generations. You know, it had a lot of whiz-bang technology, you know, the the pinball-style dashboard and the the performance of the car, you know, was a uh, had jumped significantly from the C3, which had been around for a long, long time. It was pretty old in the tooth by the time the C4 came around. I ended up, you know, just doing Corvette ads and Corvette catalogs and Corvette TV commercials and all that kind of thing. After about five years of that, I was offered a position to become uh, the editor-publisher of uh, the official Corvette Owners Magazine, which used to be Corvette News. And at that time, this was 1988 now, they changed it to Corvette Quarterly. Corvette News used to be only available if you bought a Corvette. You couldn't buy a subscription to it, and there were no ads in it. It was very much of an insider magazine. And Chevrolet decided to expand the mission of the magazine to uh, offer it on the newsstand, offer paid subscriptions, offer outside advertising, and so forth. So I did that for about 20 years. Really got pretty immersed in the car at that point. I drove a lot of Corvettes, did a lot of Corvette road trips. I became kind of a an extra driver. Whenever they did a, a ride and drive, I, I lived fairly close to the GM Proving Grounds, and oftentimes I'd get a call at 10 o'clock at night. You know, one of the development engineers like uh, Jim Ingle or John Heinrichsey would say, hey, uh, we've got a trip going to Arizona tomorrow. Can you can you go? And I said, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I said yes yeah, without but of course. thinking about what I had to do the next day, you know. But, uh, you know, being able to do stuff like that and, and listen to the, you know, we typically have a caravan of about 12 cars with drivers and passengers and all connected by radio. And uh, usually it was a matter of driving next year's model, you know, advanced prototypes. And it was a great way to learn about the car, ask questions, 
you know, experience the car yourself. So it was a rare opportunity. You have to take advantage of those opportunities when they present themselves, correct? <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you really do, and it's and, and, you know, it's fun, and you know, it's, it's one of those things you see when you pinch yourself and you think, oh my God, I'm getting paid to do this. This is amazing. Right, right, yeah, that's very interesting. So you've written numerous books about the Chevrolet and the Corvette. So let's find out what kind of Corvette's in your garage right now. <laughs> Actually, I do not have a Corvette in the garage right now, but uh, I'm making room for a Corvette in my garage, which is going to be a, uh, to the best of my knowledge, a 2022 V06. And I'm very excited about that. I just, everything I've heard about the car uh, just sounds sensational. And, uh, you know, as good as the C8 is, the Z06, I think, is going to be even better. Right. Yeah. Considering how much horsepower is in the base Corvette nowadays and the performance numbers, who knows what the Z06 will do, correct? Yeah, we don't really know yet, but uh, what we do know is that the engine in that car is a dual overhead cam engine with a flat plane crank, and it's what the C8 race team is using this season, and it looks like they're going to win the uh, IMSA championship. But the bottom line is it's uh, really a great-sounding engine, which to me sound is always really important, and uh, that it's, you know, it's a real monster. Right. That is very interesting for sure. Well, I do like to play a little game at the end of this, but before I do, uh, what's the base w- best way for our listeners to find your books? Well, uh, I would go, I guess the number one and kind of the cheapest way is through Amazon. You can find them all there. The, the three books, Zora Arcus Duntoff, The Legend Behind Corvette. Then I wrote another book called Corvette America's Sports Car, Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. And this was published by uh, Rizzoli Publishing. And I'm not sure, the book is out of print right now, so um, I think you'd probably find it from some used booksellers or whatever. But uh, it was uh, it's one of those big oversized books uh, coffee table style books but uh, I'm very proud of the, the actual history of the Corvette that uh, I was able to write many of it based on my own experiences with the car, direct experiences and the, the opportunity to interview as many different Corvette people that are out there. Um, you know, I interviewed a ton of people for the, the Zora book so I'm very proud of the story I tell. A lot of coffee table books tend to be more interesting just from the photos that, and not too much because of the writing, but uh, I think uh, this is an interesting book. And the photos were all ones that I, I, I was given permission to rifle through General Motors design staff archives and go through old filing cabinets that you know, hadn't been touched in years, and I found a lot of stuff that I'd never seen before, concept Corvettes and different types of fiberglass models and clays and things that, uh, you know, just kind of led up to the final designs of each of the generations. Well, one thing I like to do at the end of this, and I apologize, I did not update, I did not give you a heads up, but it's fun, is I play a little game called Keep, Cash, and Crush. So I give you three yeah. cards, and you have to pick which one you want to keep forever. Uh, which one you don't mind cashing in, and then which one you send to the crusher. And so since you're a Corvette guy, I had to pick Corvette. painful, painful. I know. <laughs> well, let's see how you do here. Now, to make it super painful, I picked some of the early Corvettes. So the three cars I'll give you, now let's just assume these are all 
nice driver cars. Nothing special, okay. not Concours, but really nice driver cars. So I'll give you a yeah. 1953 Corvette, first year ever. So we have to have one of those. Okay. Uh, uh, iconic 63 split window fuel-y. Oh, boy. And then the last one is the 67 427 convertible. God, these are tough, tough choices here. Yeah, I know. I'll give you a second there. So those are your three cars. Which one would you keep forever? Which one would you cash in? And then which one would you send to the crusher, figuratively? <laughs> oh, boy. Well, I think I'd have to keep the... Uh... I'd have to keep the 63 fuel I think. Mm. Okay. And I'd have to cash in the 67 427, because I think that one still commands the most amount of money. And that breaks my heart, because the uh, the 427, you know, is is probably a much better car than the 63 fuel But the 63 fuel is such a icon. And yeah. Such a such a dramatic turning turning point in Corvette history that uh, I had to do that. And then, boy, it just uh, saddens me to think that I have to relegate the 53 to the crusher uh, <laughs> because, uh, you know, there are only 353s made. And uh, they were, you know, they, they, they get uh, a bad rap because of, uh, you know, two-speed automatic, six-cylinder engine, all that kind of thing. But, Relative to other cars of their day, it was a pretty damn good car. It's still an absolute gorgeous car. Well, now those are great, great picks. Uh, surprised me a little bit. Not exactly the order I thought you would go in, but that's why I love this game because I think it's really hard to pick. It's, it's fascinating to learn other people's tastes in cars, especially someone who knows Corvettes as well as you do. So, well, thanks for joining us today, Jerry. And as a reminder to our listeners, be sure to find his books about Corvette and Chevrolet on Amazon. So again, thank you, Jerry, for joining us on uh, our podcast today. Well, thanks, Greg. I really uh, enjoyed being with you and uh, hope to do it again. Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast. <laughs>